Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes Subversion of Expectations, Super Apostles, The Three Trees of Good Friday, The Great Good Shepherd, and The Servant King. Enjoy! There's a certain literary device called a subversion of expectations. It's this idea where you expect the plot or the development to go in a certain way and, and it doesn't. And in some cases that can be kind of that can be kind of frustrating because you know you expect this resolution to this story arc. In other cases, the subversion of expectations is a way to treat you know to teach you a lesson. An example of this in the Bible, it's really common, is it's Jesus talking about the Pharisees a lot of times. You know, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Well, the tax collector is a bad guy and the Pharisee is a good guy. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows the story. And yet, subversion of expectations. The script is flipped. And the Pharisee is the bad guy and the tax collector is a good guy in the, you know, the parable that, he's, that, that Jesus gives. That was a different Sunday. What I'm talking about this Sunday is actually the gospel account of Matthew when Jesus... When Jesus heals a woman of a blood disorder, and then he goes and raises a girl back to life who had died. It's a version of expectations. This account is rife with them. <laughs> Let's get into it. historic one-year lectionary in this gospel account from Matthew it actually picks up in the middle of something that's already going on if you if you go back a little bit beforehand the disciples of John the Baptist are talking to Jesus about fasting and following the laws of the old uh, of the old covenant things like that when Jesus is having a conversation with them and he's answering their questions and then behold something happens a ruler, a secular ruler, a Roman ruler, approaches Jesus, interrupts the conversation, and this is where the this is where the account for today begins. As Jesus was saying these things, as Jesus was explaining to the disciples, yada yada, a ruler came. And this ruler came, and depending on the translation you use, it says he he knelt before Jesus or he bowed before Jesus. Now the improper understanding of these things is that it was just like a like a curtsy, like a like a hey, how's it going, buddy? Uh, type nod or or it, the word that is used is the word to prostrate, which is more likely that this guy threw himself at the feet of Jesus in the dust. The word also means, the Greek word also means to worship. So this man worships Jesus and then tells him, it says, my daughter has just died, but with you, you know, if you say the word, if you, I don't remember specifically what he says, but basically Jesus, you can bring her back to life. I, I trust that you can bring her back to life. This guy is an outsider. He's a Gentile. He's not, he's not, you know, probably a regular synagogue goer, church goer or whatever. 
So the expectation of the story is, oh, this is a Roman ruler. This guy's a bad guy. This guy's a Gentile. He's an outsider. He will not have faith. He has his own gods that he worships, and he's a politician once more. And instead, what you see is a subversion of expectations. It's this guy is credited in scripture as having this great faith. He worships God, and with his faith, he declares that God can raise his recently deceased daughter to life. All right, so Jesus goes and, and begins to follow him back to, to, to his house. Well, you would expect Jesus would go from point A to point B, maybe with a sense of urgency, maybe not so much because uh, in this particular incident, um, the guy's daughter is already dead, and she's not going to get more dead. Um, he already trusted he can bring her back to life. So he's making his way over, and as he's going through the crowd, the, uh, there's a woman who for 12 years has suffered from a blood disorder, uh, you know, a, a flow of blood. The Bible isn't very explicit about what that means, but we've got a few good guesses uh, that it means that she's ritually unclean, that, that she, according to the, the purity laws, is unclean. So for 12 years she's had this flow of blood, so she's not able to go into the temple. She's not able to go see a priest. She is, again, effectively an outsider. She is not, you know, she's not a Pharisee. She's not a, she's not a rabbi. She's not somebody you would expect to see, you know, displaying great faith because she's been outside of the temple for 12 years. She's been unable to see a priest for 12 years. She's been unable to probably engage in most social activities with others for 12 years. Because remember, if she's unclean and you engage you and, and you make physical contact with her, guess what? You're unclean too. That's it's the purity laws, right? So this poor woman has been suffering for 12 years, not just from the flow of blood, but also from what that means to her social life, to her religious life, etc. And she should expect, if this was, you know, a rabbi or, or, or a priest or something like that, that, that she wouldn't want to make him unclean by approaching him, especially without his permission. But she has faith that Jesus will heal her, so she reaches out and she grabs hold of of, of a bit of the fabric of you know of his of his of his cloak or whatever. She grabs some of the fabric because she has faith that even that alone will heal her. Well, Jesus again, subversion of expectation happening here too. You would expect this holy man to pull away. Well, who's grabbing on my what? Who's grabbing my my, my cloak? Who's grabbing my you know my my coat or whatever? Who's, who, who's handling my fabric, right? And you would expect him to pull away and to continue on in, 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 his, in his journey to this, to this poor guy's you know, deceased daughter. But instead, it says he turns, so he stops, he turns around, and he engages with this woman, with this ritually unclean woman. And then he says to her something that, again, I feel the English Standard Version doesn't capture fully. Depending on the translation of Bible you use, the ESV will translate it something along the lines of, um, daughter, your, your faith has made you well. And to be fair, her faith has indeed cured her. It's, I mean, well, God cured her, but it's, it's her faith that clung to that, you know, that clung to that Lord and Savior. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek does not say, daughter, you have been healed, you have been made well. It says, daughter, you have been saved. Your faith has saved you. Hmm. Faith saving people. I wonder if that's ever mentioned any other time in the Bible. So he says, daughter, 
your faith has saved you. And indeed, she's healed and she's also saved in the sense of salvation, right? Uh, she has been saved by her faith. She has faith in her Savior and that, in turn, leads to her salvation. So, he says this to her and then he continues on his journey. Now, next subversion of expectations is when he gets to the house of the ruler. And as was customary at that time, you would have mourners. It would be like wearing all black at a funeral. Um, things like, yeah, like this was basically a funeral party, reception, I don't know. It was a funeral thing that was going on. People were playing flutes and making a commotion. You could hire, I mean, particularly if you were a, a, a well-to-do individual like a ruler would have been, you would have professional mourners, you know, wailing and crying and stuff because, you know, your daughter just died. It makes perfect sense. This is exactly what they should be doing. These mourners are mourning the death of, of this ruler's daughter. And Jesus goes up to them and says, go away. <laughs> for this, for his daughter is not dead, she is only sleeping. Now again, from the perspective of these people, Jesus is incorrect. He is misinformed. They know what a dead person is. This lady, this daughter, this, this young girl, however old she is, she's dead. She's not like, you know, taking a power nap. She's dead. And it is appropriate when somebody is dead to mourn them. And this is the way that they mourn them. They were, you know, by all accounts in the right, they were doing the thing that should be done. And this guy comes up and says, no, no, you misunderstood. Really? Really? You who just showed up? You, this character who just showed up and told us she's not dead, she's asleep. So what do they do? They laugh at Jesus. They say, ha, 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 ha. Because they don't think that he understands can't tell the difference between a sleeping person and a dead person what happens next I think is is particularly interesting it says and then they were they were put out I believe they were they were they were put out of the house so you got to imagine whose house is this? this is the ruler's house the ruler still has faith in Jesus he doesn't you know he doesn't take the side of the mourners and say no no Jesus she really is dead she's not sleeping but he trusts that even if he doesn't understand it Jesus knows what he's talking about so he puts out these mourners he's like no no actually actually get out <laughs> actually get out of here he's Jesus is right I don't understand it which is kind of the case sometimes but Jesus is right so he puts the mourners out and Jesus goes to where this girl is lying and he takes her by the hand raises her up and the account goes out to all the district of, of this work that he has done and I looked in the Greek again for the word you know for right for raising her up and it's interesting that this word can have multiple meanings as many words do of course this word to raise somebody up means physically to raise them up but it can also mean to wake someone up and I think both the double meaning here can can kind of be applied this is another, well, there's a couple subversions of expectations. First, purity laws. Touching a dead body makes you ritually unclean. That's the purity law, and what does Jesus do? He touches a dead body. But who can then say, okay, well, Jesus, you touched a dead body, you're unclean. Really, where's the dead body? Because what I see here is a girl, and she's alive. And then, raising her up. This subversion of expectation, the expectation is when somebody's dead, they're dead. Right? That's the end of story. But what this ruler understood from the very beginning of this gospel account is that death isn't the end for those who have faith. And he knew that Jesus, as God, has power over life and death. 
both in terms of internal salvation and in terms of physically raising. So, subversion of expectations again. This, this girl is raised from the dead. And this is kind of... This is kind of relative... This is kind of relative to the story of your salvation as a Christian. Because God... God didn't do necessarily the things you'd expect him to do. You'd expect bad people get punished, right? But while you were still a sinner, while you were still dead in sin, Christ died for you. Maybe someone would die for a righteous man, but for somebody who is currently dead in sin, somebody who is currently in trespass, that's absurd. It's a subversion of expectations. God, fighting against you know, the princes of this air and, and the earth and, you know, the, 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 the world, the devil, and our sinful nature, you would expect, you know, this, this slap-down, drag-out fight, this one-on-one -on -one confrontation. But instead of riding in on a, on, a, on a war horse, Jesus shows up as a child in the manger and then goes on to live a perfect life and as a servant, as a suffering servant, is tortured and put to death for crimes he didn't commit. You would expect that this righteous, perfect, all-powerful God would just, just breeze through and I smite thee, I smite thee, I smite thee, and work his way through like that and then snap his fingers and everybody's forgiven. But instead, what he does is something that's for us doesn't make as much sense but is actually better off it's this concept where the wisdom of God is higher than the wisdom of men for us it seems almost foolish that doesn't make sense that's not how I would have done it but for God how he does it is better God acts in a way that we don't expect and in a way that's better than than we deserve God acts with mercy and grace in a way that we don't deserve. We deserve punishment, but we get mercy and grace and, and forgiveness instead. And then you go on and you keep sinning. Every day you keep doing that same sin and God keeps forgiving you and he doesn't ever run out of patience. You would expect him to get annoyed eventually and say, you know what, there's a hundred times you've done this sin. I am sick of it. You are no longer forgiven. You are out. But that doesn't happen. Instead, God continues to forgive you. You cannot out God's grace. God lowers himself to your level to die on the cross for you as a human, fully human, fully God, to die on the cross and to walk out of the tomb three days later of his own accord rather than every other person in history except Enoch and Elijah whose bodies moldered in the grave. Jesus takes his own body back up of his own accord and walks out of the, walks out of the tomb. And all this is for our benefit. He defies expectations he subverts expectations for your benefit. While you were still a sinner, even though you continue to sin, God came as a servant, not as a conquering hero to come and to, to crush you into submission, but as a servant to lift you up, to die for you, to die in your place, and to save you from your sin. It's an interesting literary device. And it comes to teach us a few things. It's worth considering. Most of all, <laughs> it's worth remembering your salvation, your baptism. God died for you. You are a child of God. In the name of God, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was put on your head in your baptism. Your sins are washed away and you're forgiven. 
something great to keep in mind, even if it doesn't make sense sometimes. You take care and God bless. Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Peter Popoff, Joyce Meyer, Rick Warren. What do all of these names have in common? Well, they're not apostles, and they're not faithful teachers of Christ's word. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna go there. Let's get into it. I could keep going with names, by the way. You got T.D. Jakes, you got Creeflo Dollar. Creeflo Dollar, jeez. If you, if you wanted to let everybody know that your ministry has nothing to do with God and everything to do with, with you worshiping money, name yourself after a type of currency. I'm Creeflo Dollar, as in, let's not talk about God, let's talk about how rich you can be. Anyways, so. The text for today was from 2 Corinthians. This is the second letter to the church in Corinth written by Paul. Well, written by God through Paul. Uh, church in Corinth get, gets a lot of letters because they keep screwing things up. Now, in this letter, in this particular section, uh, Paul is addressing this problem of these false teachers. And these false teachers were showing up, and some of them were even calling themselves super apostles. Well, if you know Greek, and I know you do, the word apostle means someone who is sent, a sent one. Um, and so this is like specifically, uh, capital A apostle would be people like, would be people like Matthew, would be people like uh, the twelve disciples after the uh, after the crucifixion. It would be people like John or Peter. Or Paul, for example. These are all capital A apostles. These are all people that God specifically sent to do a task, to go and preach in different churches, to go and start churches, to go and uh, to go and share the gospel of Christ. And this is why Paul writes so many epistles. He writes so many letters. He's sharing the gospel of Christ. Now, in this section, this is uh, second, second Corinthians, right? So it's a letter to the church in Corinth who had a lot of problems. Hence, they got a lot of letters from Paul. And Paul is warning them about these false teachers. And these false teachers, and like the ones I mentioned earlier, they would set themselves up as these grand holy men or these grand holy women, if you're, you know, Joyce Meyer, for example. Uh, and they would have these they would have these lists of accomplishments and you know they were able to talk directly back and forth with God and have private conversations with God they're able to do these miracles they're able to do all these things and they would have all these bona fides bona fides whatever they were able to have all these things that would basically say hey look I'm, I'm qualified as myself to be a prophet or a, an apostle and then they would go and teach something that's completely against the word of God again like the list of names that I mentioned at the beginning of this video Go ahead and get mad in the comment section. I love it. No, I'll talk, I'll, I'll talk to you about why each of them individually is someone you shouldn't be listening to. But those are just examples of modern-day false teachers, false evangelists, false apostles, false prophets, whatever. You can search Prophecy 2021 on YouTube, Prophecy 2020 on YouTube, and you'll find plenty more. But the, di the difference uh, between Paul, an actual apostle, an actual teacher, an actual evangelist, and these false prophets is not actually these qualifications that they claim for themselves. So in this section, Paul starts talking about their qualifications, and he engages in the, in the, um, in the time-honored Christian tradition of mocking false teachers, which I love. 
Elijah loved doing that too, him and the prophets of Baal. And what happens is, is he starts laying out these reasons that they've given for why they should be listened to. They'll say that they're an Israelite or they're a Hebrew or they're a follower of Christ or that they've suffered this much persecution or that they've done these works or whatever. And Paul, he lets everybody know how sarcastic he's being because sometimes you can't convey sarcasm in a letter. And he says, well, I'm going to speak like a fool because you guys listen to fools. I'm going to speak like a fool. Maybe you'll listen to me. Uh, or he'll, he'll say, I, I'm speaking like a fool or I'm speaking like a madman. And, he'll, and he says things like, oh, they claim to be an Israelite. Ooh, I'm an Israelite too. They claim to be Hebrew. Wow, I'm a Hebrew too. They claim to be a follower of Christ. I'm a better one. They claim to have suffered for the gospel. I've suffered more. I've been beaten up and shipwrecked and yada, 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 yada. And he, and he lists all of these, these things that happened to him and stuff like that. And he continuously says, I, you know, I'm speaking like a madman. I'm sp- if somebody's talking like this, they're trying to get you to listen to them. They're a fool. They're a madman. They're crazy or they're evil, uh, which is often the case. So he says that these lists of qualifications, you know, whoop-de-doo, he's got better qualifications. But these aren't, this isn't what he relies on to, to teach as an apostle. What he relies on is teaching the gospel of Christ. He talks about, um, you know, um, he talks about his bragging about, if there's anything to brag about, he should brag about his weaknesses. Because in his weakness, God is demonstrated to be strong. Because, you know, Paul is lacking in one thing or another, or he's got a thorn in his side, so he's got to rely on Jesus. These other guys, they would rely on themselves. They'd boast on their strength, or their lineage, or their whatever. uh, And they would say that this is why you have to listen to him. Paul says, you got to listen to me because... This is the gospel of Christ. So there's the difference between a false teacher and a real teacher. It's not whether or not they have a degree from a seminary or whether or not they have a million followers on YouTube or they've got a golden throne on, you know, the TBN, whatever that network is on TV, uh, or whether they've written enough books that, you know, like Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. Like none of that has to do with whether or not they should be listened to. Whether they should be listened to or not is completely dependent on what they teach. So are they teaching the gospel of Christ or are they teaching another gospel? In the, in the cases that I mentioned, they are teaching another gospel. Sometimes they'll quote scripture. Sometimes they'll almost teach the right thing. Sometimes they will teach the right thing and then they'll divert it into some heresy. I mean, if you remember Jesus 40 days in the wilderness, the devil actually quoted scripture in order to try to get him to sin. So, you know, the devil using using scripture and using Christian sort of language and behavior to trick people into believing a false doctrine is not something new. But the distinction, again, the distinction between a false prophet, a false super apostle, which they don't exist, and modern day prophets also don't exist. That office is closed. I mean, after, uh, I was going to say after Micah, but after John the baptizer, there are no more modern day prophets. There are none. If someone claims to be a modern day prophet, they're a liar or they're crazy. One of the two. Uh, It depends on the person. But the difference between these false teachers and the true teacher is what they teach. If they say, I am a Christian teacher, and they are not teaching the teachings of Christ, they're either crazy or a liar. They're fools or madmen, as Paul uses the word. And it doesn't matter how much they can brag about all of their wonderful, you know, they can heal people. They can make people whose legs are like different legs. They can let, you know, whatever, whatever parlor tricks they pull out, It doesn't matter. What matters is what they teach. Are they teaching that you sin, you deserve hell, Christ died to pay for your sin, and that forgiveness is free, a free gift for you? 
Are they teaching that Christ rose from the dead in body, in soul, and that he ascended into heaven in body and soul, and that on the last day, your body will be raised and brought to heaven where you, your soul hopefully already is um, because you believe in Christ? Are they teaching the gospel of Christ? If yes, good. That's fantastic. If no, it does not matter what, qualifi- what qualifications they claim for themselves. They are false teachers, fools, and madmen. So that, there you have it. How to spot a false apostle, a false teacher? Well, what do they teach? This is why you need to be in the Bible all the time. So you know what God teaches. So when you have somebody who teaches something contrary, you say, hey, wait a minute. That's not right. You're a false teacher. You fool and mad man. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to get in trouble for people telling me that I'm besmirching the name of some great pastor who's actually taught heresy. Hey, you know, sometimes that's just the way it is. All right, you have a wonderful week. There are three trees in the Bible, and these trees are all tied together with life and death. What am I talking about? Let's get into it. So today is Good Friday when I'm recording this video. And on Good Friday, we celebrate the death of Christ, the death of our Lord, the death of the Savior on the cross. And as I said in the sermon, there are three trees in Scripture. The first tree is in the, is in the Garden of Eden. This is the tree of life. God makes Adam and Eve, and in the Garden of Eden, they're given this tree, this tree of life. Now, as long as they eat from this tree they'll have eternal life as long as they continue to eat from this tree. Now in the garden there was another tree. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was only one command given to Adam and Eve, and this command was that they do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, as you are familiar with the story, you'll know that our great, 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 however many great grandfather and grandmother ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God. They They distrusted God's command and his promise, and they thought they knew better, and they ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They tried to become like God, and in so doing, they brought sin into the world. And as a result of bringing sin into the world, they also brought death into the world. And I'm not just talking about human death. Death is the unnatural separation of the body and the soul. But death is also something that cursed the animals afterwards. So, sin and death reigned in the world as a result of the second tree. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and as they were kicked out, God gave them a message, a promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the first gospel message. Now, this is the message, the promise of the Messiah, and this is that one day someone will come, and the serpent will strike his heel, and he will crush the serpent's head. This is the promise of the Messiah. Well, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Time passes, the flood happens, and the Garden of Eden is washed away, along with it the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So no longer can mankind ever hope to go and return to that garden and eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No longer. Well, 
history continues, and it's a history of, of suffering and of death and of wars and poverty, diseases, and so on and so forth. This continues for thousands of years. And over this course of thousands of years, God continues to reveal to his people through prophets um, that there are, well, little bits of the promise, little bits of this promise of the Messiah. He continues to reveal more and more prophecy about the Messiah. This Messiah will be born of a virgin. This Messiah will be a descendant of King David. This, this, this Messiah will be perfect, will be, a, will be a man, but at the same time, he'll be divine somehow. So with the birth of Christ in the New Testament, this is when the countdown to the final showdown, that final battle begins. Now Christ continues to go about his ministry. He goes on preaching and teaching and healing, casting out demons wherever he goes. At this point, death, which had reigned for thousands of years, begins to see its kingdom crumble. Its throne starts falling away as everywhere death touches with sickness, with muteness, with leprosy, with death. Everywhere it touches and Christ goes, it loses ground. Jesus goes around healing. He brings sight to the blind. He makes the deaf to hear. He makes the mute to speak. And he even raises the dead. Death is losing its kingdom. And in its fury, it craves, it craves to reign again and to, and to, and to inflict this, this sting of death on this Messiah taking away its kingdom. Now, death and Satan are tied together. Satan could not pass up this opportunity to kill the Messiah. He couldn't pass up an opportunity to, to, to kill his enemy, the one taking away his kingdom. And that's what happens on Good Friday. We have the final tree, the third tree. This is the tree that they hang Christ on. Christ knows that he's going to die. He's not tricked, coerced, or forced to go to the cross. He goes like a lamb to the slaughter, willingly to the cross, bearing the sins of all mankind. He goes and he hangs on that tree. He gives up his spirit, and God dies. But that tree, that tree persists. Not the physical tree, not the physical cross. But this, this is a new tree. This is a tree of eternal life. Again, a tree of life that's planted. But this is not a tree that's washed away in a flood or lost to the ravages of time. Not a tree that can be chopped down or uprooted. This is a tree of eternal life. And from this tree hangs the food that those who want eternal life will eat. This is what you have at the Lord's Supper. The body and blood of Christ. The actual body and blood of Christ. When you eat of this tree, you will live. This is the tree of eternal life. This is the medicine of immortality that you pluck from its branches. So this is the third tree. The first tree was the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, lost to time. The second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Its curse inflicted upon all mankind for thousands of years, again lost in the flood. And then this third and final tree is planted in eternity on Golgotha. This third and final tree bears on its branches the food that will bring people eternal life once again. This is what Christ accomplished with his death on the cross. Because he was a man, he was able to die for the sins of mankind. And because he was God, he was able to die for the sins of all mankind. His death paid for the sins of mankind. And everyone who has faith in him will be saved. Their sins forgiven. And to them is offered that fruit, that that hangs from the tree, that food that comes from the tree, that body and blood of Christ, that they can eat and drink, like he says, take and eat for you, take and drink for you. 
This is the most important event in all of human history. This is the most important. Everything was building up to this from the creation of the universe from the very beginning, and this is the moment when everything changed for all of history. The death of God on the cross and the planting of that new tree, that third tree, the tree of eternal life. I hope you had a very good Friday and I'm looking forward to Easter. God bless. The job of a shepherd is to take care of his sheep, but his sheep aren't his children or his pets. Rather, his sheep are a financial investment. He takes care of the sheep because the sheep are his livelihood. He sells their wool for money, or he sells them to the butcher to be cut up and killed for, for meat. So why is it then that we call Jesus the Good Shepherd if he's willing to die for his sheep instead of the other way around? Let's get into it. The title that Jesus is given in, uh, in our gospel reading for today and the gospel of John is the Good Shepherd. This is a title that Jesus claims for himself. This is one of his, one of his I am statements. I am the Good Shepherd. Now he says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And it's important that we realize that he says that I am the Good Shepherd and he doesn't say that I am a Good Shepherd. Because if Jesus was a Good Shepherd, he wouldn't be dying for his sheep. In fact, if he was a Good Shepherd, his sheep would be dying for him. Maybe he'd have insurance and, and he'd be able to, to make some money off of the wolves coming in and eating up his flock. Or if he doesn't have insurance, then he, gets to, he protects them, but you know, ultimately it's not worth dying for the sake of a financial investment. The, life, the lives of all the sheep combined is not equal to the value of the life of one human being, one shepherd. But Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. The scripture calls God the Good Shepherd or the Shepherd multiple times. This is this image that's painted of God as a shepherd and we, the faithful or the Christians, as the sheep. And then God taking care of us. Psalm 23 is an excellent example of this where God leads us, uh, you know, in the in green pastures and still waters and such and, and takes care of us through the valley of the shadow of death. So this idea of, of the good shepherd is not a good shepherd. It's not a shepherd, a good shepherd. It's not a shepherd who is competent at his job and financially successful and, 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 and produces great wool and great mutton chops and you know whatever. It's the good shepherd. It's a specific title and it's a unique title given to a unique individual. Christ is the Good Shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep. The job of the Good Shepherd, not the job of shepherds, not the job of, of Good Shepherds in general, but the job of the Good Shepherd was to lay down his life for his sheep. And this is what you see on Good Friday when Christ dies on the cross. He dies for the sake of his sheep, for the sake of the faithful, for the sake of, you know, the sinners, the ones who are, you know... Uh, you think about it like the, the value of a shepherd's life compared to the value of his flock. And the value of a shepherd's life is worth infinitely more than even the value of all of his flock at once. If, if every sheep in the world were to die compared to the life of a human being, the life of the human being being lost is more tragic because a human's life is worth infinitely more than you know, one of these lesser creatures. 
a non-human, a, uh, a financial investment. And the same is true with regards to God in relation to people. So God is the creator, this infinitely powerful, you know, omniscient, omnipotent creator, all, you know, this all-knowing, all-powerful creator. And yet this creator dies in the place of his creation. A guy could just make more people if he wanted to. I mean, the lives of the sinners, the life of every, as valuable as a human life is, the life of every sinner, every human being that has ever existed on the earth, all put together, does not even come to a fraction of the value of the life of God, of the life of an all-powerful God. So for a shepherd to die for their sheep is, is insane. It's, 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 it's not how it should go. It's a... It's, a mismatch of value. The value of the shepherd's life is worth, worth so much more than the value of the sheep. And the value of the lives of, the value of the lives of all of the people, all of the sinners, doesn't come close to the value of the, the one God who died on the cross for the sins of, the, uh, of, the, of those sinners. So Christ is the good shepherd. He takes on the sin of the world and he suffers the punishment and death for the sake of the people whose lives aren't worth I mean, they're worth a lot, but they're not worth anything compared to the life of God. I mean, this is why God's death was able to satisfy, you know, satisfy the condition for um, the payment for sin for all of mankind. See, Christ was able to die for mankind because he was human. He's able to die for the sins of another human. And he's able to pay for the sins of all of humanity because he's God. And the, the, uh, the value of the life of God is worth infinitely more than the, than the cost of all of the sins of all of mankind. So Christ, as the good shepherd, turns, the, turns the, the paradigm on its head. The shepherd dies for his sheep instead of the other way around when the sheep are butchered. So this is not saying that Christ is a good shepherd. This is, this is a specific and unique title given to Christ. And in addition to this, we see that Christ not only dies for the sheep, not only does God die for, die for his creation, but he continue, He comes back to life. He takes his life back up again. This is what we're celebrating in this Easter season. He takes his life back up again, and he continues to protect and provide for the sheep. So the good shepherd doesn't just die for the sheep and then leave the sheep to their own devices and say, all right, well, I'm dead. You know, you're, you know, you're out of luck. You're good luck, guys. You know, you sheep are, you're going to die. You're not, you're not fighters. You're not warriors. You're, you're sheep. You're going to die. He doesn't just do that. In fact, Christ dies and then he comes back to continue to take care of the sheep. He continues to provide uh, not only, you know, physical needs, uh, but he also provides for spiritual needs. He gives scripture. So the sheep are fed on the scripture. They're fed on the word of God. They're able to be sustained on the word of God. They're able to, you know, to, to hear the promises of God and, and hear the commands of God and all this other good stuff. He also gives the sacri sacraments to the, uh, to the sheep, to the Christians, to the church. So again, you think that, you know, the sheep would die and then probably the shepherd would eat some of that mutton, some of that sheep, that sheep flesh. But again, this is a reversal. The good shepherd dies and the sheep eat the flesh of the good shepherd. This is the body and blood of Christ on the altar. This is the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And it's... It's not just something that keeps you alive for a while, but it's this amazing spiritual life-giving thing, this spiritual food and drink uh, that the Good Shepherd provides. So let's wrap this all up. Christ is the Good Shepherd. Not a Good Shepherd, but the Good Shepherd. As the Good Shepherd, his life is worth infinitely more than the sheep, and yet he dies for the sake of the sheep. 
The sheep who would normally die to feed a shepherd, uh, it's the other way around. The good shepherd dies to feed the sheep. And then rather than just dying, he dies and takes his life back up so he can continue to guide and watch over and care for the sheep. So there you have it. You have a good shepherd that not only died for you on Good Friday, but came back to life so he could continue to take care of you. Christ is the good shepherd. Keep that in mind. It's Palm Sunday, so we have the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey while everybody's saying Hosanna, Hosanna, and waving palm branches around. Well, Jesus coming in to conquer coming in for Holy Week, a king about to be victorious riding on a donkey? Is that poor taste? Let's get into it. Messianic figure was supposed to ride in and, and victoriously ride in and overthrow all the enemies and, and put Jerusalem, you know, put Jerusalem in its proper place at the helm, uh, where everybody else is, is subject, subject to Jerusalem as you know, <laughs> as king of the world or whatever. But the thing is, a lot of the people misunderstood what the prophecies were talking about. A lot of them thought that this was going to be a physical rule. They thought the king of the Jews was going to come in and make it physically an earthly kingdom and a physical sort of uprising and insurrection against the ruling powers of the day, you know, put Jerusalem in charge, Israel in charge of the world, the physical world. At the time, the Roman Empire was vast and it had, you know, it, it had its its power was, uh, it was gripping Israel, was gripping Jerusalem tightly. And, and you know, the people of Jerusalem, um, they felt oppressed by these, by these, by these pagan pagan rulers of theirs by these people who were these heathens who were put in charge of their you know their lives and they had to pay taxes to them and they had to honor them and respect them and all this stuff and they weren't even you know they weren't even Jewish they weren't even faithful they weren't from from Israel at all they were just people you know these foreigners who were you know bossing the Israelites around bossing the the Jews around so they thought what was going to happen with the Messiah is the Messiah was going to come in and you know kick down the door and uh, and, and sort things out. He was going to he was going to kick out all the Romans or maybe kill them all. Who knows? Um, but that this is not this is not what happened, right? You have Jesus. He came in and he comes in humbly, riding on a donkey. Now, yes, King David rode on a donkey, but King David conquered, right? King David killed some people. Lots of people. King David got his got his share of killing done, got his share of conquering done, and you know, putting Israel back on the map where it belongs. King David sorted out a lot of those things. So a lot of people expected that this new Messiah, who's copying King David, uh, with his with his donkey riding into Jerusalem, this new Messiah would do that. After all, a lot of them had heard that this Jesus character had just risen Lazarus from the dead. He just brought Lazarus back from the dead. Uh, many of them had either seen the miracle or heard about the miracle, the sign, uh, and they were following Jesus because of this. Now, this is the height of Jesus' popularity. And the Pharisees, the, the, the leaders, the chief priests, the people in charge, the religious leaders at the time, they were not happy with this. They were scared that Jesus was going to lead this rebellion. And Jesus was going to lead an uprising, as many other people had tried to do historically, 
uh, and he was going to get them in worse trouble with the Romans. The Romans were going to get mad and they were going to, you know, squash any sort of rebellion and they were going to take out their anger. They were going to take out their vengeance on the leaders of the Jews, on the chief priests and the Pharisees, the people who were supposed to be in charge, supposed to be keeping the peace. So these Pharisees, they were upset for, for maybe a good reason. They thought, oh no, you know, there's going to be an uprising and everybody's going to suffer more. That's the charitable reading of their motivations, that they were concerned for the fate of the Jews. They were concerned for the, for the fate of the people, right? That's a charitable, charitable reading of their actions. More likely, or maybe equally likely, is that they were upset this, that this Jesus character, this Messiah, this messianic figure, was coming in and doing all these signs and miracles and kind of taking away some of their authority. They were the ones who were in charge of saying, you know, this is what the law is. This is what the Torah says. This is what the oral Torah says. This is what you're supposed to do. We're in charge of telling you what to do, and what you're you know, allowed to do. And, and you have to give us honor and respect. And Jesus was coming in and being a Messiah and saying, you know, you've heard it said such and such. But I say unto you, even this such and such, you know, and, and he's expanding the law of, or he's explaining the law of like, thou shalt not murder, but don't even, you know, don't even hate your brother, basically. Don't commit murder in your heart. Don't commit lust in your heart. So Jesus has taken away their thunder. Jesus has taken away their position of authority. And they don't like that. So they, I, I mean, this is this leads into Holy Week here. Their plot to, to kill him. Because again, uh, it's better that one man die than, you know, for the sake of everybody, basically. It's better that they that they kill this, this, this otherwise righteous man if it saves everybody. I mean, words more true than they realize yet. We find this out in Holy Week. But Jesus comes in and he's not intending to overthrow the Roman government, not by force. He's not intending to, to ride in on a steed or a chariot or anything like that and, and, and do all this damage and, you know, go to Caesar's palace and punch him right in the nose and be like, get out of Jerusalem, dude. I mean, he wasn't in Jerusalem. He was, he was in Rome. But he wasn't going to come in and, you know, overthrow the Roman rule in Jerusalem, at least not the way that these, that these people wanted him to do. Instead, Jesus is riding in on a donkey shows humility and humbleness. And this is one of those one of those things that continues throughout Jesus' ministry. This isn't just that he comes in on a donkey and that's kind of uh, that's kind of the end of uh, the end of that of that strategy. No, on the other hand, what happens is that Jesus' entire ministry is kind of based on humility and humbleness. And we see this in, in, um, in, the, in the epistle to the Philippians that we read for today, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming, by becoming a man, by becoming, I mean, this is God Almighty, and he becomes creation. He becomes a human being. He becomes a baby in a manger. He doesn't even come out of the sky like in a flaming chariot of, you know, Elijah, uh, you know, wearing a crown, diadems and a flaming sword and everything like that and set up rule as an earthly king. He comes down and shows up as a child. And then as a servant, he washes people's feet. He heals other people. He teaches people. He acts like a servant the whole time. So he's this complete opposite of what a lot of people understood as this conquering king figure, this figure who's going to save them. Now, he does end up saving people. But he doesn't do it by, by kicking doors down and punching Caesars in the face. What he does is he, he acts in humility. He acts in humbleness. And the ultimate humility and humbleness is in his obedience to God. Now, you remember in the high priestly prayer that he'll pray later on uh, in, in the garden is that he says, not thy will, but, or not my will, but thy will be done. So he, he, he subjects himself to the will of the Father and he makes himself humble, humble even unto death, even death on the cross. 
So ultimately, Jesus does come into Jerusalem. He does come in victoriously. He does come in riding on a donkey. And he does come in and conquers. But he doesn't do it in the way that people expected him to with a you know, war horse and, and, and you know, fire and fury. He comes in with humbleness on a donkey, with humility, obedience. And ultimately, he conquers by dying on the cross. He wins through his humbleness and through his humility. And this is, this is Jesus. Palm Sunday is this beautiful picture of our God. You have gods of other religions, of other false religions who, you know, they go around and they conquer and they're violent. And they, you know, they do all these forceful things and they, and they forcefully subject everybody to their will. But in Christianity, the true religion, you have God who comes down and makes himself humble. He makes himself a servant and he serves the people that he saves. He doesn't save them by force, but he serves them and dies on the cross for their sin and saves them. He dies on the cross for your sin to save you. Just a different kind of God. The only real God, huh? A God not, not made after our own image of bravado, but a God who was a servant, a servant God. That's something to think about. I'll be at fun. Take care.